Good morning. I got a little bit of a bum knee, y'all. Forgive me. We're going to be in John chapter 1. So, Father, as we come to your word today, we come with celebration and expectation. We honor your presence in this place. We ask that you would continue to meet with us and commune with us as we study your inspired scripture. And Lord, as always, we pray we would leave this place with a hotter love for Jesus in our hearts, better disciples, with passion and conviction to serve this community, to see the redemptive work of God in our midst. Holy Spirit, would you fall upon us, we pray. Anoint us afresh. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. 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 Well, J.I. Packer, in his work, Knowing God, you guys remember that book? That was a popular one. Uh, He points out that many who wrestle with Christianity as a faith, they often grab at certain intellectual hurdles and argue against those hurdles as a means to resist Christianity. Uh, A popular hurdle those resisting Christianity argue against would be the resurrection. Uh, How could a man be raised from the dead. Can a, can a man really get up from the grave? And we've done quite a bit of apologetic work or argumentation in the Christian community to argue for the historicity of the resurrection. But the historical reliability of the resurrection account is not the primary mystery of the Christian faith. Others murmur about the atonement of the cross. How could the blood of one man offer forgiveness for the entirety of Humanity and some prop up that question as having some objectionable, objectionable value as a means to deny the Christian faith. Some question the miracles of Christ, water being turned into wine, or Jesus strolling on the top of water, and they say there's no way a man could stroll on water. Christianity must be false. How could blind men see, or lame men walk, mute men talk? Packer points out that all of these objections are actually not the correct objection to Christianity. They're not the primary mystery of our faith. All of those objections rightly rest upon the greatest mystery of our faith, which is the Incarnation. How could a man rise from the dead? Well, if that man was actually God, then resurrection from the dead is not only possible and plausible, it's slightly obvious. How could a man's blood sacrifice pay for the sins of the world? Well, if the man on the cross is God in the flesh, then the sacrifice, of course, it could redeem the world. How could a man stroll on the top of water? Well, if said man was the one who formed water and all of its properties, shaped it into how it is and what it is, of course, he could tell it to hold him up as he walked on top of it or change it into wine if he liked. If the man who causes blind men to see is the one who forms retinas, of course he could fix it if he wanted to. See, all of these objections are actually founded upon the supreme mystery of Christianity, which is God in the flesh. And it's actually the incarnation that's attacked by every cult and every false religion. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's always trying to pick at, to belittle this concept that 
Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Even the Mormons can square up with Jesus the prophet, or the Muslims square up with Jesus the prophet. They cannot deal with Jesus the God-man. What is the chief mystery of Christianity? It's surely the incarnation of Christ. This morning, as we get ready to celebrate Christmas, this holy event for the Christian church for all of its history, briefly, I want to visit John chapter 1, verse 14, which is kind of the supreme text for the incarnation. And we want to stop by and and visit with Athanasius again, the early church father who, uh, around the age of 20 early 20s, I want to say 24, 25, 26, wrote a work called On the Incarnation. Now, uh, Athanasius was a brilliant young man. Uh, one of the great, one of the stories of church history is that Athanasius, as a young boy, was playing in the river and baptizing uh, some of his friends, kind of mimicking what he had seen the bishop, um, Alexander, do. Now, Alexander happened to be walking by the river, the, the bishop, And he stops these young boys pretending to be baptized. And he kind of begins to question them. You know what you're doing over there? Let's kind of talk this thing through. And as Alexander questions Athanasius, a boy, he realizes that Athanasius has an acute awareness of what baptism means and the theological framework um, that must be um, understood to to baptize. And and Alexander, who is, again, the the bishop of Alexandria, declares these baptisms valid that Athanasius was performing as a young boy in the river. Then immediately takes Athanasius under his wings and begins to train him theologically. Athanasius, again, is the one who would uh, kind of square up against Arius concerning the deity of Christ um, at the Council of Nicaea. And for the rest of his life, he argues for the, the deity of Christ, but also the humanity of Christ. Now, we'll turn to John 1.14. I'm going to read you the text and then show you ways that in church history we've understood the text and to ultimately lead us to have a better grip on what are we celebrating when we celebrate Christmas. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, Of course, this passage is a part of John's prologue, or the introduction to his gospel. We studied the whole prologue this year, so you could return to that and visit for a fuller uh, exposition of that text. But just to remind you briefly of where we are in the scriptures as we study this text, and the concepts that John's playing with. Remember that John, in the beginning of his gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so in that initial line of scripture, John establishes Trinitarian doctrine that in the beginning there was a divine logos that was not created but always was, an eternal logos who dwelt with God, with the Father and was also God. And so there's already in John 1:1 we find Trinitarian doctrine, that there was a second person to the Godhead who dwelt from eternity past with the Father, was co-equal with the Father, and was God. So when we step to John 1.14, and we, we return to the concept of the Word, the Word referring to the eternal Logos, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who is with God and was God. So he says... Uh, 
and 114, this word, this eternal God became flesh. This is actually what the term incarnation means, is that the word was in flesh. Carnation, think of that word etymologically being related to, uh, like, like the word carnal, the, the, it means bodily, flesh. The eternal logos of, of eternity, history, became flesh, became man. And in Christmas, we're celebrating, doctrinally speaking, the incarnation when that person, when that person put on flesh. Now, when I was, I don't know, 16, 17, I was a very much a cultural Christian, had been around Christianity, and I was exploring um, teaching, and I, I, I liked to listen to preachers at times, and there was a preacher across town who I was interested in, and I had went to visit his church a few times, and I was becoming intrigued. And he... Um, I visited his church for the Christmas Eve or the Christmas service. It was kind of this, the Sunday before Christmas. And the entire message, um, he stood with a Christmas tree behind him and a, and a gift wrapped. And he, the whole message was, Jesus is God's Christmas gift to you. And I never went back to that church because I thought there must be something more than that. That can't be the... I, Jesus is certainly the gift of God to the nations, but he's certainly more than a Christmas gift. It wasn't as if the entire point of what was happening was that God wanted to start Christmas and he'd start the whole thing off by giving us the first gift. I thought there must be something deeper here. What the church has celebrated historically was the mind-boggling truth that the word became human. Now here, I'd like to talk to you for a moment about the way in which Athanasius um, argued for the orthodox position of Christ from this text. The question of the word becoming flesh lies in the word become. What does it mean that the internal logos of God became flesh? Does it mean that God merely put skin and bone on? Athanasius would argue and reason this way. You know, we see a, a kid in a Halloween costume. My, 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 my brother, my older brother, was like one of those kids with the like craziest imaginations. One of our favorite family stories is he was playing catcher and t-ball, but he wouldn't hand the umpire the ball because he thought the umpire was a vampire, and he was not getting that close to that man. He was one of these crazy imagination kids who had to wear a, a Batman outfit everywhere he went. And his uh, brother is incredibly witty and sharp. He's a sharp mind. Um, but he wasn't Batman just because he put the Batman costume on. And so the argumentation kind of goes this way. of Did, did God merely put on skin and, and bone? Was he in a costume? Um, they, they would argue, like, just because I'm standing in this building doesn't mean I am the building. And so when we say God became flesh, do we, do we merely mean that God stepped into skin and bone? Now this is from the Athanasian Creed, which was post-Athanasius. Athanasius didn't write this creed. Um, it, they just named it after Athanasius because it was based some on his argumentation. Um, but this is a creed from the 4th 
century, fifth century, um, listen to it. It says, For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of His Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of His mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul in human flesh. Jesus is not just God inside of the building, if you will, of humanity. Jesus is not just God with a Halloween costume on, pretending to be flesh. Jesus did not merely possess skin and bone, but Jesus possessed possessed a soul and emotion and affection. And Jesus is not, becomes the word, became flesh, does not just mean the word war flesh, but that the the word of God took on into himself the fullness of what it means to be human, all of humanity. And so God is impeccable, holy, deity. Um, Deity cannot hurt. Deity uh, does... God, the Father, has never experienced um, the kind of disappointment and, and suffering and emotional anxiety and stress that we experience. But Christ Jesus took all of that on. He's not just deity in skin and bone so that when he uh, prepares to go to the cross that he know that he doesn't feel frustration. We we see Jesus his soul being crushed in the garden of Gethsemane. And as he weeps big tears and he begins to sweat great drops of blood. I've told you this a hundred times. Um, uh, physicians tell us that this is a this is a basic um, thing that happens when a man or woman holds up under fight or flight for too long. When, when, when you go into fight or flight mode and your adrenaline begins to pump, um, your body, you either fight or flight to escape this moment. But if you hold up under that kind of adrenaline and pressure for too long, the veins in the skin, the, the, even the shallowest veins, begin to break. So as you're sweating, you begin to bleed. In other words, this, this phenomena of Jesus' life, it attests to the fact that his soul was experiencing extreme stress and anxiety and, and, and frustration in the hour as he awaited his crucifixion. So he's not just God wearing skin and bone. He's God having a fully human soul. So then Athanasius would ask the question, so by saying the word became flesh, do we mean that that God simply transitioned into man? Did God change in the incarnation simply to become man? And, and Athanasius and the church fathers would argue, no, that's not what John meant. From understanding the fullness of John's theology through his other works, there's no way that John meant that in the womb of Mary, God morphed into a man. Jesus, as he walked the earth, did not lose a drop of his divinity. When they, they would argue that, that, that deity could never change. Deity, um, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Jesus did not simply lose divinity to transition, to morph into humanity as if he was in some kind of cocoon in butterfly transition in Mary's womb. No, he was fully God still. 
And so, uh, again, the creed says, Although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by the taking of manhood into God. Jesus did not in any way lose his godness, his divinity, his attributes. Philippians 1 and 2 tell us that Jesus, um, he humbled himself and throughout his life his glory was veiled, that he didn't receive the worship and adoration that he was due, that he, he looked like a man, although he is the glorious one forever. But, but that does not mean that he sacrificed in any way an ounce of his divinity. God is unchanging. He took on humanity into his godness. He didn't change from God into man. So now what we find in Christ, what I just tried to say to you, is what historically would be called the hypostatic union, or the union between full humanity and full divinity in the womb of Mary. So in the child laying in the manger is not God with a costume on, pretending to be man. He is God, still, fully, who has become man. And He is not a man who was once God. He is a man who is God. Why is there a need to be so precise about the hypostatic union, about the nature of Christ? Because again, if Christ was merely God with a costume on, he would, not, he would not be able to sympathize. He wouldn't know what it means to be tempted. So Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 17 through 18 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered, God suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God, in this incarnation, has suffered. He has made propitiation. God died, bled. Galatians chapter 4 is a man born under the law. He lived tempted, yet fully righteous to deliver us from the law. Christ existed as a man totally righteous man. And he bled as a man. He was crushed as a man. But as God, he got up. He pours forth human blood from his veins to wash the sin of what Scripture calls his brother's. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. What does that mean? That Christ, in his human existence, experienced weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ is familiar with weakness. Jesus, who is fully God, knows weakness in his humanity. He's grown tired. He's grown frustrated. He's felt disappointment. He's grown hungry. He knows emotion and suffering. And his knowing is experiential. It's intimate. You experience the loss of a loved one. 
most scholars believe that Jesus's mother, his Jesus's earthly father Joseph, um, died at a fairly young age, and so Jesus knows what it's like to lose a father. Jesus is rejected totally by his family. There's a point in his life where Jesus's brothers and sisters call him crazy. You feel like a black sheep. He always knows what that feels like. He's despised and rejected, Isaiah says. You feel persecuted at times for your beliefs. You feel like everyone spits on you and gossip about you. You want to talk about bearing false witness? Jesus stands in front of Pontius Pilate as the entire religious community screams lies about him. He knows experientially what it means to be rejected. Again, if he was just God with skin on, he wouldn't know what it, in his soul what it means to be spat on. So he's fully man, and that he experiences all of human existence in life. But he's also fully God. And in being fully God, this man just tells people to get up when they die. And being fully God, this man says, the wine's run out. I got this. And being fully God, this man forgives sins. Woman caught in adultery, thrown at his feet. Get up and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. At times, the religious community persecutes Jesus for two things. For calling God his Father and making himself one with the Father, which he was. And two, for forgiving sins. Who can forgive sins but God himself? Christ Jesus continually offering forgiveness to those fallen, to those in bondage. By being fully God, he bridges the gap between humanity and deity. Therefore, the full logic of what we just said, the baby in the manger that we celebrate, is uniquely able to sympathize, is uniquely able to know me, and is at the same time uniquely able to deliver me. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. The Jews respond, we're sons of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. What is the free indeed that Christ sets us free from? Slavery to sin bondage to the fallenness of humanity. Because he is uniquely man, he is able to fulfill law on our behalf. And because he is totally God, he is able to deliver us. The hypostatic union. What is the greatest mystery of the Christian faith? The greatest mystery of the Christian faith takes place in the womb of a virgin where God absorbs into himself fallen humanity. And for eternity, we will worship this God-man. In heaven today, at the right hand of God, is not Christ Jesus void of his humanity. He will be human for all of eternity. We have a high priest who is man, fully and totally man 
And there will not be a moment of eternal history where he will lose his humanity. So, so, the Jesus I walk with knows totally what it's like to feel sorrow. The Jesus I walk with knows disappointment. The Jesus I walk with knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to feel lonely. The Jesus I walk with knows what it's like to suffer temptation. The Jesus I walk with is uniquely and totally a friend of sinners. I can commune with him. He's, he's not, he's not the, the, the kind of man who's had a totally cush life and is unable to have a conversation about bitterness or frustration, or he's experienced frustration. And at the same time, the Jesus I walked with is totally able to deliver me from my circumstances. So our high priest, do you hear what I'm saying? He walks with me as a man. And he walks with me as God able to deliver me from sickness, disease, depression, anxiety. He listens to me with sympathy and comforts me as one who's been through hardship. And then when he's done watching me suffer, he just fixes it. And so I come to Christ in the secret place of prayer and I say, God, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm just tired. And I feel Jesus say, yeah, I know what that's like. And then it's as if he says, don't forget, in just a few short days, this earth will be consumed with fire. And I will redeem all of creation. Jesus is the only person in all existence that is able to say to me, Caleb, I know what it's like to be tired. Here, have my strength. I know what it's like to suffer. Here's peace. What a unique friend we have in Jesus. And a unique God we have in Jesus. So he goes to the cross. And as one who lived again totally righteous, he was tempted and tried in every way, yet without sin. He goes to the cross. And when they... When he lays in the Garden of Gethsemane, we went to Israel on some trip some years ago, and the the guides just kind of tried to fly past Gethsemane. I'm like, no, I'm going to sit for a while. (laughs) You talk about whatever you want to talk about. I'm going to stay for a while. Because uh, I guess it was Leonard Ravenhill who talked so much about the Garden of Gethsemane that it became a big part of my spiritual life to chew on what it was like for Jesus. what what, What was his prayer like in that garden as he waited nails and the cat of nine tails, and a, and a sense of abandonment, and his friends betrayed him. What was all of the emotion that he felt there, and the suffering that he felt there, and then to ponder the tears, and the sweat, and the crushing. I've told you before that the Garden of Gethsemane was a was a olive grove, and olives are crushed to make oil anointing and i think there's some imagery there that in that garden of olive groves jesus was crushed to pour out the spirit on us that in the crushing of 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 the olive and the crushing of the grape you know there's bears forth wine bears forth oil 
I've thought a lot about that over the years. And as he goes to the cross, he doesn't, God in his impeccable deity could never be wounded. Yet, the mystery of Christianity is that in Christ, in that union of humanity and deity, Jesus feels pain like you've never imagined. Many, many physicians would say that the, that, that crucifixion was the most gruesome death that a human could experience. He's stripped naked. And his, again, back is totally torn to pieces by a cat of nine tails. And they're not just putting a crown of thorns on his head to, to watch him suffer as it's crushed into a skull, though he does, but they're putting a crown of thorns on his head to mock him. They wrap him in a purple robe that's now covered in blood and sweat. Possibly his own bodily excrements. Then force him to try to carry a cross up a hill in totally exhaustion. And when they drive nails into his hands and feet, he totally feels it. Pain, physically. Pain, emotionally. But who do we worship? And what happened, again, in the womb of a teenage virgin? God, in his great kindness... He didn't say to you, climb the ladder, be more religious, perform, then maybe we could have a relationship. God said, I will become fully man so that I can relate to you, so that I can know you, so that we can have real friendship. And when you find yourself imprisoned and in bondage, I'll set you free. I'll bring peace. I'll liberate you. You'll never walk alone. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And simultaneously, as you walk with me, I provide strength and peace and deliverance and hope and liberty and life and joy, unspeakable and full of glory. We, we, need, we would do well to think about the Incarnation. The, the early church thought so much about it. It was one of the theological themes of the first four or five hundred years of the church was, was grasping, wrestling with the, the God-man. What, what, what are all the implications of his humanity and deity being united in one person? And I would just say, as we get ready to close, the implications are... Um, You don't have a distant God. You have a God who's totally near and knows you and loves you in spite all of your, forgive me for saying this in church, in spite all of your crap. And he's able to deliver you, to heal you. You are every day by the power of deity becoming more like Christ Jesus. And on the day either he returns or, or you pass from this earthly life, when you see him, you will be totally like him. He will transform us into his likeness and his glory. And we will worship the God-man forever who walks with us and talks with us. 
Go ahead and stand to your feet. We'll get ready to close. Seth, come for me. Come do something good before I fall over with his knee. As we close, I, I, the team's going to lead us in, a, in some worship. But I want to take some minutes just to love on him. I want you to just meditate on, again, the incarnation, the God-man who knows you and sees you and simultaneously is able to bring you peace, life, and joy. He walks with you in intimacy and in power.